Welcome to the Variety Hour on AM 990, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money on AM 990. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And good morning, and it's March Madness. You know, I, I guess I would have liked to have been my former life, maybe have been a broadcaster during March Madness time, because it's exciting to hear the upsets. And as you were listening yesterday, I don't know how your brackets did. I'm still wondering if I, why I even attempt to do that. I think next year, I was talking to a guy yesterday, and he said the way his kids do it, and these are not young kids, they're teenagers, they go by warm and cold. I mean, you think about it, you know, if it's a cold, they don't like cold. So they like being in the South. So they look at the two teams. If it's a northern cold team, nope, they're not going to make it. Warm team, they're going to make it. And that's how they pick their brackets. Great scientific reproach. And I guess I would have not picked Yale to one yesterday. Way to go, Yale. Little Rock, way to go. The tournament pool, here's a statistic for you. 60 million Americans who fill out their NCAA basketball tournament brackets, and all of them get grieved or they're excited at the end of the deal. 60 million Americans. By the way, if you just celebrated yesterday, of course, it was the uh, Fighting Irish or Irish or the whole idea of St. Patty's Day. Here's a statistic for you. 33.3 million Americans claim to be of Irish ancestry. Now, that's only seven times more people to claim to be. Uh, from Ireland than the population of Ireland itself. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's a, We've got a great program for you. A lot of things going on. March Madness, you know, St. Patty's Day, the presidential race. 43% of Americans say today that they think that uh, military service is extremely important for a president. And 33% saying having been a governor before is uh, one of the traits that they look for in presidential. And now, of course, as you look at the two that are seem to be the front runners, neither have that. So maybe 43 and 33. Well, I'm not even going to go there. We're not into politics today. Here's what we're into, though. We're going to be talking with Mac Bailey, who concentrates his practice in the area of estate taxation and planning and specializes in elder law. Now, that's a... That's a topic that we have had him on before. It's a popular topic. It's very important because I know I'm talking to you. If you happen to be one of those people that are in a sandwiched generation, you've got young kids at home or maybe they've just maybe they're gone and come back and maybe you're taking care of that elder parent. Well, Mac Bailey is going to help us find out more about what's going on as far as elder law and what you need to look for in the second half of the program. We're going to talk with Jason Harrington, and it's really kind of one of those situations where if you have you gotten ready to take a trip overseas, you're going to get a passport, can't find it, or maybe you've got to get a birth certificate and you can't find that or you don't have one. Well, we're going to find out what do you do when you don't know where your documents are, and we're 
really going to dive into how do you find a lost will. That's going to be our topic. That's critical for us. You're listening to Talk Money. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and I just want to remind you we're going to be here for a full hour, and we've got a jam-packed program. Mac Bailey will be back as soon as we come back. Find out what is elder law. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search for Shoemaker Financial. Talk Money will return after this. Take a second and think about the three most important goals or priorities in your life right now. At Shoemaker Financial, their team of qualified and experienced financial professionals is committed to helping you achieve these goals or priorities. From insurance needs to college funding, retirement, or estate planning, Shoemaker Financial is here to help you accomplish your long-term financial objectives. To learn more, visit ShoemakerFinancial.com or contact them at 901-757-5757. At Shoemaker Financial, it's not just the plan, it's the results. Jim Shoemaker and Jason Harrington, registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services Incorporated, securities dealer member FINRA SIPC. A registered investment advisor, Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now, once again, here's your host for Talk Money, Jim Shoemaker. And welcome back. My guest today, Jason Harrington and Mac Bailey. Mac Bailey with the Bailey Law Firm concentrates. Let me say this again because this is important because I I want you to kind of make sure that you understand not every lawyer is created equal. Some specialize in one subject. Some specialize in another particular area. And a lot of times people end up trying to find someone who's the generalist, and uh, they get just that, the generalist. And so what we're talking about today is a person who concentrates his practice in the area of state taxation and planning, asset protection planning, charitable gift planning, business succession planning, and elder law. Now, the last one I mentioned, elder law, is one of those that you kind of put in your mind thought and say, okay, what is elder law? So... Let me welcome our guest, Mac Bailey. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Good to see you, Mac. Thank you. Uh, what I, I think, guys, I really do, Mac, want to start, because I think our listening audience says, what is elder law? And I know that we could throw a bunch of jokes out. That's not the point. The reality is it is a concentration. It is a specific concentration for a group of people that desperately needs your help. So what is elder law? Elder law focuses on legal issues that primarily affect the elderly or seniors. Those issues may include uh, wills, trust, powers of attorney, uh, Medicaid, veterans benefits, Medicare, um, as well as long-term care planning. So let me let me. When you say concentrate, I mean, I think that process. I'm thinking of my mom before she passed away, and some of the issues we had. At a, we went from a elder living place where she, you know, kind of a uh, great, great environment and think to ultimately we had to go to the nursing home. And and I'm thinking, how do I know when I need you? Most people know that they need me too late. Yeah. But we prefer for people to do preventative planning instead of uh, emergency or urgent planning. Yeah. Um, but I believe most of the time people come to us when they're faced with the issue of how they're going to pay for long-term care Who's going to be in charge of that long-term care planning process, and how are we going to take care of mother, father, grandmother, or grandfather? So I guess what I'm thinking, when we talk about elder law, who specializes and concentrates in that that elderly person, and then 
I guess define an elder law attorney then, I guess, was as I'm thinking through this process. And, you know, when you say you specialize in that, what makes you uniquely different than the guy down the street that says, well, I'm a lawyer, too? Well, for one thing, uh, three years ago, I went back to school and got my Master of Laws in Elder Law from Stetson University in Florida. Now, is that the, is that unique to Memphis? or I mean, I don't think there's 150 of you guys in Memphis. Am I correct? No, I, I think there's only one of us in Memphis. Yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to give you a chance to say that. man. And that's unique, though. I mean, that's the reason why I think it's important. That's why we have you on the program. That's when we – I know some people that have worked with you that you that really sing your praises, and I appreciate that. But I really want people to understand the difference is not this is not general practice law. It specializes in the needs of the elder law, Absolutely. the elder. And when you're practicing elder law, you're balancing a lot of things. You're juggling a lot of areas of practice. We're looking at taxes. We're looking at estate planning. Uh, we're looking at housing. There's a lot of issues involved in putting together a long-term care plan from a legal perspective. When you mention long-term care, I know, Jason, we talk about that a lot in the office. We deal with that. We we, we kind of guide people into directions uh, in, in our practice when we're talking with people. And some people uh, embrace long-term care, and some people, as you said, put it off, and I'll wait, and I'll wait, and I'm not going to take care of that. That's what happens in that part? Jason, do you have a thought on that? I mean, yeah, no, I was going to ask. When you mentioned preventive planning. You know, we get asked, when should we start thinking about this? I mean, what I've got parents who are in their young 60s. You know, is it now? Is it when they were 50? Uh, when, when should you start talking and bringing other family members into this picture? You know, it's very interesting. Uh, we have clients from age 20 all the way up to 100. Uh, and the very beginning, one of the things we always recommend, and we don't sell it, but we recommend for everybody look at long-term care insurance because that's one of the primary things that we can utilize in our plan to help pay for their long-term care cost um, and help take care of the family, both uh, the sandwich generation as well as the elderly or senior parents. Well, talk about the five ways. I know you've done this before on the program, and I, I know people respond to this and they listen and they, and they appreciate what you're going to say, but five ways to pay for long-term care. Number one is private pay. Everybody gets that. As long as there's money in the bank, you can pay for your care. Private pay, of course, is the most expensive way of paying for long-term That's care. That's a dollar for a dollar. Yes, sir. Second is long-term care insurance. Uh, insurance products are out there that are available. I'm not an insurance salesman, but they're certainly available to pay for long-term care costs, and we highly recommend it to our clients. Third is Medicare, C-A-R-E, but Medicare only covers 100 days of rehab after a hospitalization stay, so it's very, very limited. Fourth is Medicaid, C-A-I-D, and that's a program for impoverished seniors to help pay for their long-term care. And then the fifth, there's a VA-improved pension, sometimes called aid and attendance, which is available to veterans and the widows or widowers of veterans to help pay for their long-term care. Now, let's just camp a little bit on, on here I am. I, I've got uh, older parents, let's say, uh, and we'd start doing some planning. I know we've seen this happen where we we have the kids come in, and I know you do some trust work and Maybe you're transferring assets to the kids or at least putting it, you know, irrevocably into a trust so that the parents no longer can control that. And they and that's how do you deal with that? I mean, some parents, some elders say, I'm not going to do that with my kids. I don't trust my kids. Yeah, it's not that they don't trust them, but it is that point where there's a there's a fear a little bit. It's kind of like I'm losing control. 
That's right. I always say I'm part bartender and part lawyer and, <laughs> and part psychologist yeah. because there's a lot of emotions involved in long-term care planning, especially when, when the strategies, the one you bring up, is transferring assets that will assist them to qualify for government means-tested benefits that will pay for their long-term care. And that could be the veterans benefit or Medicaid. Yes, sir. And that, that's critical for people to understand it does mean somebody's going to give up control. That's correct. There's a balancing. There's a there's basically a pendulum where we're going to give up control in order to get benefits. Let me, I guess, if you do that, does the house, how does the house play into that? I mean, here's here's mom. She's living. She's doing fine. Dad's probably headed to a nursing home, and um, they they need to do some planning. Dad was a veteran. Uh, does she have to give up the house? I mean, what's the status? That's a good question. That's number number one misconception by most of our clients is that the house has to be sold or liquidated. And the house is actually one of the few exempt assets, both for veterans' benefits as well as for Medicaid. On the veterans' benefit side, it's unlimited. You can have a million-dollar house and still qualify for VA benefits. On the Medicaid side, it's around $540,000. So a big house, and you don't, you don't have to sell it. Mom can stay there or dad can stay there. For their lifetime. Yes, sir. And it doesn't roll back into, you know, there's not a penalty for that. At some point in time, we say, okay, you can do this, but at some point you're going to have to pay a penalty. There's no penalty. Well, there is estate recovery upon the death of both of the parents to where the state of Tennessee or state of Mississippi or whatever state it is would basically come back in and say, we paid this amount of money out for Medicaid, and therefore we want to recoup what we paid on your behalf from the residents. So right. there is a potential for that. So is there a limit, a time limit on that, or is that forever? That is forever, unfortunately. Okay. So mm-hmm. Medicaid, the state recovery could could come back and haunt the person. They just need to be sensitive to that. Yes, sir. So so explain that to me. Now let's take a let's take land for example, where you got a lot of land and it's worth a lot of money. Uh, but the, the, the dads, you know, they need to get in so they borrow money on the land but it's in dad's name, and he goes into the nursing home. Does that encumber that land And because they're paying for the property, you know, the land, or the government's paying? You see what I'm saying? Does, does that create a problem for the land or a home? Or what? Now, I guess the home would be exempt. Is land exempt is what land I Land mean. is not exempt unless it's contiguous to the primary residence. I explain that. So, in but, other words, it could be a thousand acres. Yeah, acres. But, as long as it's less than the five hundred thousand dollar number. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so. that eliminates the thousand acres in most <laughs> cases. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's important for people to understand that you need to do the planning. There are five ways. Medicaid is one, but you have to be willing to lose control, and then the veterans benefit. Have you seen a lot of people move in the veterans benefit recently or in the last year, few years? That seemed to me to be something that wasn't talked about years ago. I think it was a very unknown. The benefit's been there a while, but it's been unknown. And just in the last five to six years, have you seen a lot of people become aware of the benefit and apply for the benefit? Um, and it's and like I tell people, this is a benefit that the veteran earned by his service or her service in our United States military, and they're entitled to it if they qualify. If they qualify. Medicaid eligibility, explain that first so that we know and understand that completely. Uh, Medicaid eligibility, they look at both income and assets. Um, On the income side, you can't have more than $2,199 per month in income to qualify. If you have more than that, you can put it all your income into a trust and still qualify. On the asset side, they divide assets between exempt and non-exempt assets. We've already talked about the biggest exempt asset, which is the residence. Right. Other exempt assets are cemetery lots, uh, funeral insurance or policy, automobile, and contents of the house. 
Okay, so that's Medicaid. Is the is the veterans eligibility about the same, or does it fall into some different thoughts? It's about the same, but you still get the residents. It's unlimited. Uh, but in general, um, the VA benefit they have a range of fifty to eighty thousand dollars in assets as the eligibility point, as the amount of resources you can own and qualify for the VA. But benefit. the house is still exempt. The house is still exempt. Yes, sir. So I could have an eighty thousand dollars CD in my name. I'm the veteran. My wife would still be eligible to get that for me, and that's. I guess it's it, it, it's complicated, Mac. It's not easy. This is not rocket science, but it's what it's complicated. It's like Social Security. You got to know all the thoughts and the angles, and it, it's talking with someone like you to get that point across to help person understand it. It's very fact specific, and it's not one of those things that I can answer at a party when people come up to me and say, <laughs> "Will my mom qualify for VA benefits?" I'm sure, and it's hard to ask on the radio. And will my mom qualify for VA benefits or, or Medicaid benefits? But it is a planning process. Now let's stop for just a second. I'm, I'm thinking of the couple that's okay. Listen to me carefully. You're you're listening to the program. You're thinking, hey, well, what do I need to do? I want you, Mac, to guide this couple who now has the dad is living it there with them or mom has now moved into with them. And don't put it off. I mean, do some thinking now. Do some planning now. Give me, Mac, the directions of what they should think about and how they should go and how they should start. The first thing they do is, is to gather facts. They need to know the income of their parents. They need to know the assets. They need to know how the assets are titled. They also need to know exactly what level of care their parents are going to need, whether it's going to be assisted living, skilled nursing, or some kind of custodial care in the middle. All right, hold on to your thought because you said something that I promise you that people went right by us because we're, you know, we're thinking. You said it, and you say it so quickly, and I know you think it all the time. And I'm thinking of a particular client that when I told him he needs to know what things, how his, how his property was titled, it just glazed over. I mean, he didn't have talk about that for just a second because that is so critical. And a lot of people think, well, I wrote my got my will done, but they didn't get the things titled that matches up to the will, and it, it kind of voids the will to some degree. So talk about that for me. Yeah, you need to look at. Let's say you had a bank account. Whose name is on the bank account? Is it in the parent's name, or is it the parents and the child's name? Is it in both spouses' names? So you look at the titling of the asset. How is it actually titled? You also need to look and see, is there a beneficiary on it? Some people put payable on death beneficiary designations on their accounts and don't really realize what that means. Some people just add their kids as signatories. So it's very, very key to understand that if you have a bank account or a stock or a bond or mutual fund, is how it's titled and what will happen to it based on the contract between you and the bank or the mutual fund company, what will happen to it when you die. All right. Now we've got we're walking through this process. How do you prepare? How do you plan and titling, getting things titled correctly? What are the next steps? I mean, as we're still we're, we're thinking in our heads, we're putting all this stuff on paper and we're preparing a, a plan and we're working through that. How do we go forward? I think the next step would be to start meeting with professionals, whether that's your accountant, your financial advisor um, or a geriatric care manager, someone that's going to help you understand what level of care your parents need. And then, of course, an elder law attorney. And if you go to one of those, sometimes that one first advisor you meet with can connect you with other advisors if you don't have that team put together already. All right. When the team comes together, all right, how do I know, 
what parts of the team is playing. I mean, that's that's critical for us to make sure that everybody understands it's not the financial advisor's job, and nor should he ever even consider that, that he's going to start telling the lawyer how to write the legal. And I've seen that happen. And, and But it's not for the lawyer to kind of sometimes tell us the financial advisor how to, to put the assets together. It's working together. Explain the team concept. The team concept's important because I tell everybody I don't profess to know everything, and I certainly don't know anything outside of my area of practice. And so it's important to have someone, a group of people, that can give you advice on all the different areas that are necessary in order to do the put together the best plan for your parents or grandparents. You know, Jason, we do this in the office, and, and sometimes we try to you know you're in charge of teaching a lot of the young people. And I know it, it's 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 a mindset that – so many times when they come together, they're thinking, I can't really uh, I can't really get the lawyer involved because I'm going to lose control. Sure, you know what I'm saying? Sure, and they they sense that. And, that, you know, we, we deal with that. We're trying to say to the client that we're coming together as this team, and as Max very clearly distinct, just talk, talking about this, you come together as a team and the client wins because not everybody's going to be able to believe they think they may know a whole lot about other things, but it's always that idea of depending on the team members to make this the best experience for the client. Absolutely. I think the most comprehensive help that we can provide as advisors and that the client should expect is that we are bringing in people like Mac and other professionals and creating that team around them where we can communicate openly about the best interest of the client, where, where, where our uh, expertise stops that we have someone else there to come alongside and help us answer the question for the client. I think it's great. I think we should see that the same way, and, and our guys do. Okay. All right. Well, if you just tuned in, I'm talking with Mac Bailey. He concentrates his practice in the areas of estate taxation and planning, asset protection planning, charitable gift planning. We're going to talk later on next week. I have actually some gift ideas and some things. We're going to talk really about trying to get you thinking about charitable gift planning now and not December the 31st. That's kind of the program for next week. And he also talks about business succession planning and elder law, and that's our focus today. We've talked about Medicare, I mean, excuse me, Medicaid eligibility, veterans benefit eligibility. But when we come back, we're going to talk about how to manage the finances of an incapacitated person, somebody who can't make those decisions anymore, and somebody that maybe is semi-doing okay, but they need to work through it. We're going to find out some ways to do that, and that's critical when you try to do some planning for that elder parent. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Shoemaker Financial and Securian Financial Services are not affiliated with Mac Bailey or the Bailey Law Firm. Shoemaker Financial and Securian Financial Services do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should always consult their tax or legal professionals regarding their own specific situation. Talk Money will return right after this. Have you thought about pursuing a career in financial services but have no experience in the industry and need training? If you are goal-oriented, highly motivated, and enjoy working with people, you have the skill set Shoemaker Financial is looking for. Shoemaker Financial is continuing to grow their team of financial advisors in the Mid-South, and they're ready with the training and tools you need to get started. With over 35 years of providing professional advice, quality products, and excellent service in the Mid-South, you too can now be a part of their growing firm. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, contact Contact Keisha Parrish at 901-757-5757 or email at kparish at shoemakerfinancial.com. 
Any statements made by our guests are not necessarily the opinion of Securian Financial Services or Shoemaker Financial. And now, once again, helping you make the most of your money, this is Talk Money. Well, welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker. We're talking with Mac Bailey and Jason Harrington. We're talking about elder law and the idea behind do you know where your documents are? And we're going to dive into that in just a second. But let me give you an announcement that I want you to know about. Put it down. March the 31st, 2016. That's a Thursday night from 6 until 730. And there will be a light dinner served. And the location is in our training room at Shoemaker Financial. It's hosted by Michael Powell and Jason Harrington, my very own guest today. It's principles of personal finance, and it's really designed for that young couple that's either getting married or already in the process of getting, you know, they're already married, but they're newlywed. So here's the thought. It's it's principles of personal finance. It's a time when you get a, a meal, but it's a time when you can dive in and get some questions answered if you're thinking about getting married or you've gotten married in the last couple of years. It's a a great seminar, two great guys, Michael Powell and Jason Harrington. That's um, March the 31st at 6 o'clock uh, at the office. Just give them, them a call at the office at 757-5757. Ask for Jenny and tell her you want to come, and that's all it takes. And it's uh, free to the public. So do that. That would be, well, I think a very good thing. Jason, we're talking with a guy that obviously we depend on a lot because of the, the thought process behind the idea of elder care and and we've been kind of diving into that and you've you know your thoughts when you think about that how do you explain that to a client when you when you mention hey i need to talk to you about some planning and you've got that elder parent well obviously we i first think about you know the long-term care that we talked about on the right. first segment uh the second thing would be you know do they have all their documents in order you know their will do they have any trust do they have powers of attorney Healthcare directives. So that's uh, really what I'm thinking about is making sure that they have all their documents in order. Well, let's talk about that because uh, I want to do two things before we get through with this. I want to talk about financial elder abuse. Yes, because that's an issue that that I've seen. I've been a I mean, actually been a part of that, mm-hmm. not to participate in it, but had to uncover it Absolutely. and discovered it and work through it. Uh, and also, you're talking about the living trust, the powers of attorney. How do you, how, I guess, Mac, I'm asking this question. How do you manage finances if the person is incapacitated? Now, we talk about power of attorney. You talk about living trust. But explain those, and in, I guess, in, in, in importance. Okay. How do you put that in some idea behind, I need that? Well, the first thing I tell a lot of my clients is let them understand that a marriage license or a birth certificate is not a power of attorney. Wow, wait a minute. We need to replay. <laughs> Can we back that tape up? Because that is a big issue right there. That's something we deal with all the time. Because they look at and they look at you like they're deer in headlights when you say that. Yeah. So they say, Well, I've been married for forty five years. I should be able to make decisions for my husband or my all wife. All day long. Or he's been my father now for 60 years. Right. I should be able to make decisions for him. But that's not the law. Okay, let's talk about that. What do you do? They need a written document called a power of attorney. There's two types. There's a financial power of attorney and a health care or personal care power of attorney. And those documents will allow someone to make decisions for an incapacitated adult when that person can no longer make decisions for themselves. All right. All right incapacitated that's not the vegetable laying on the back of the board someplace and and plugged into 50 machines as some people think that's the dementia patient 
that literally, I mean, it's not that they're, you know, they're still capable of doing a lot of things, but you can just, and I've had them in my office, and we're required, and I'm sure you are too, as you're talking to someone, to try to get a feel, how are they handling numbers today, decisions today? Are they capable of doing that? That's the beginning, isn't it? That's correct, because it's not the 0% or the 100% that we have a problem with. It's the 50% of incapacity we have a problem with. It's where someone who is is now gradually on the decline, and they're starting to make bad decisions financially. They may be paying the lawn man $100 uh, to cut a small you know, 10-foot stretch of, uh, of grass in their front yard, or they may be giving $1,000 to the maid to come in and clean on a Friday afternoon, or they may be sending in all types of money to all these types of bogus charitable groups out there that now have got them on, the, uh, on their telephone list, and they're calling them every day, and they're sending money to them on a regular basis. Those are the issues that we primarily have to deal with. That's that's a sad thing because there is there are people that that prey on those people. They 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 look for that and that senior population, that baby boomers that are now aging, is becoming a huge scam target. And they don't. It's not that they are not. They're they're vulnerable. But they, if you talk to them, sometimes you know they're doing fine. But there, there's that moment of that lack of ability to make decisions, and that's what you're talking about. So power of attorneys, number one, and you said financial power of attorney. That's correct. And then you also want a health care, medical, or personal care power of attorney that allows someone to make medical decisions for you or to decide where you're going to live, what your housing is going to look like, you know, what kind of meals you're going to eat, maybe help you out on the personal care side as well. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to think that people don't realize the importance of that. But I, I went through this with my mom, and, and I had the power of attorney. And I can remember knowing that I had to have tough discussions with some people surrounding us. And, you know, it was an awesome responsibility to take care of that part. I mean, here's it's a reversed, it's a reversed uh, you know, description of what goes on. She took care of me as a six-month-old baby, and I guess at her age, 91, I'm taking care of her. And basically, it was almost the same as she was doing it for me you know, some odd 60, some odd years ago. Yeah, so. there's a time period when the parent can become the child and yeah. reverses the roles. I, I think I tell people if they say, what should I look for uh, to, to see if there's potential for financial elder abuse? And one of the primary things we look at is isolation. I mean, you may have a, a single parent whose spouse is deceased. The kids live outside of Memphis now. They no longer live here because everybody's so mobile. And how isolated are they? Um, are they alone? Do they have support groups? Do they go to a church? Do they go out on the week, weekends to uh, bowl or to go to anything. dance or anything? anything. Yeah. And the, more, the, less, the more isolated they are, the more subject they are to financial elder abuse. Well, we're going to come back. We're going to dive into some more of that. And, Jason, I know there's some things that we've got as far as when we try to look for that. We'll talk some about that. But we're talking with Mac Bailey, the Bailey Law Firm. He specializes in elder law. Uh, to my knowledge, and I think what you said earlier, the only one in Memphis that specializes that is that that specifically does that. We're talking about how to look for those people when they're incapacitated or even how to recognize that they may be incapacitated. But we'll be back right after this. This is Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. Talk Money will return right after this. Although not everyone fell victim to the yellow fever epidemic that ravaged Memphis in 1878, the city itself did not survive. The picture at that time could hardly be described as anything but grim, as tax revenues fell sharply and the city's ability to pay off its debt grew uncontrollably. 
Despite stiff opposition from the mayor, a measure to disincorporate the city passed the state Senate and House the following year. Memphis then ceased to exist as a chartered city and was made a taxing district under the authority of a council of nine members, only four of whom were popularly elected. Under the new administration, taxes were raised, the old debt was paid off, and the council began to fund badly needed improvements to the district. Yet, as the new life was beginning to return to the local economy, a shadow was cast over these improvements in the form of widespread corruption, embezzlement, and nepotism. Though such losses to the district's coffers were easily covered by strict fines on gambling, the ongoing problems in the district arrangement made it clear that such a system of local government could not last forever. In the following years, mayoral government was restored and Memphis became a prosperous city once again. This has been another Mid-South History Moment brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. Helping you make the most of your money. This is Talk Money with Jim Shoemaker. And now, once again, here's your host for Talk Money, Jim Shoemaker. Well, we're talking with Mac Bailey and Jason Harrington. We're talking about elder law, and we're talking about how do you know where your documents are. If you don't know where your documents are, what are you going to do about that? Well, we're going to dive in that in just a moment. But right now, we're focused on how to manage the finances of a person that's incapacitated. Now, you know, we're going to find ourselves possibly in that state some point, or you're looking at a parent and maybe, as Max said earlier, it's not the 100% incapacitated, it's 50%. It's just not quite able to make those financial decisions. He talked earlier about the financial power of attorney or a power of attorney for health care. But a living trust, that's that's a big animal there that a lot of people go, oh, I don't need a living trust. Why is that important? Well, the, the living trust will help, number one, avoid probate upon death, which is a cost savings and a savings of time delay. And then number two, though, it's a great incapacity planning tool because it allows someone to literally step into your shoes. You're the trustee. Initially, you become incapacitated. Whoever you've named as your backup just steps into your shoes and starts handling your finance as if nothing happened. And that's can be, a sp- and again, you said earlier, and I think we need to repeat it as many times as we can, a marriage license or your birth certificate for mom and dad does not give you the power to oversee or take care of their finances. That's correct. And, and people forget that. I mean, you know, and here's the thought. I, I, I've done this a couple of times where I've had people come in and say, well, I put my daughter on my checking account. Uh, I put her on my CDs or, or, you know what, my daughter is the joint tenant with me and she owns part of my, my assets. And she's and I'm saying, great, what about your son or your other daughter? Well, she lives in Oregon and that's okay. I said, well, you just didn't disinherited her. And, you know, if she if you want your daughter to make a gift to, you know, that's what happens. Mom dies. Everything goes to that daughter that's here in Memphis. And if in order for to get anything there to the other daughter in Oregon, you're going to have to make a gift to her. I mean, that's the issues I see a lot, Mac. What do you think about them? I mean, how do you help? How do you counsel people around that? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of joint ownership between parent and children uh, for two reasons. Number one, it changes the estate plan. Absolutely. And number two is it subjects those assets to the creditors of the child. Yeah. Mm. And so for those two reasons, I'm not a big fan of it. I can think of a couple of children that I wouldn't want my clients to have that problem. You know, Mac, I mean, when we talk about that, Jason, let me, let's just dive into this one thought here. Jason, I know we've done this. We've seen this. Client comes in. I have a will. Right. And you go, okay, 
can can we look at it? Can we can we look at it? How long ago did you have it? Oh, well, it's only 10 years old. And what happens? And they can't find it. And that's a problem. <laughs> or it hasn't been updated. And uh, but but, you know, a lot of times our clients will hold on to those documents. They have to reference regularly. It's the documents that they don't look at, you know, for 10 years, 15 years. They move. Uh, they find a we're drawer. About, they get, I mean, we're talking about documents such as? Such as the will, birth certificates, marriage license. I mean, we've talked about uh, that a lot, you know, in particular with Mac here. You know, uh, what happens if you can't find the will? I mean, you know, we it's something that, you know, we tell them to go look for. They could have a copy of it. Mom may have it or dad may have it in the safety deposit box. There's all kinds of issues if it's if it's left at a bank. Uh, so, Mike, talk a little bit about that. What what happens when, you know, we can't find the wheel, will or it's at a bank in a safety deposit box? Well, first, I always tell the clients the original is the one that counts. That's right. And so they'll go, well, we'll ha- you'll have a copy, correct? I'll say, yes, I'll have a copy, but the copy is not something I can probate. So when you can't find the original, the last will and testament, there's a presumption that it was destroyed by the person that signed it. They didn't like that will anymore, so they got rid of it. And in order to probate a copy of a will, you have to overcome that presumption. And it's difficult in the law to overcome a presumption. Okay, well, let's talk about that. If, uh, here's that person that, that can't find the original. You know, I mean, Dad put it somewhere. I mean, you know, and, and so I, they can't find it. But they found the copy. You have a copy, or I might have a copy. What do they have to do? In order to get through that process, they actually have to file a lawsuit against all the heirs at law that would have normally inherited under their estate and take the position that although we can't find the original, it's just missing for some reason. And this copy is really what this person intended to do. And if someone objects to it, it could be a fight in court. And that can be a major problem. Absolutely. That's one one reason we recommend to our clients, put your documents in a safe place. Also, let other people know you know, the, your loved ones, where you have kept your your documents. And I know that you can say, I want to put it in a safety deposit box, but if you don't have access to that safety deposit box, it was set up by Dad, and you're trying to get it, and you go into the bank, and they say... Well, it could be a court order to get that open sometimes, right? All yes, right, sir. Let's, let's talk about this conservatorship. I mean, I haven't done anything, and I now need to take care of Dad or Mom, and, and they're incapacitated. The term conservatorship. Yep. If you never signed a power of attorney or if you signed one and now you can't find the document itself, the only option is a conservatorship. And a conservatorship is a court process, and it's basically a lawsuit filed against the person who's alleged to be incapacitated. And it's very, very costly both financially and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Now, think about that. Yeah. you got to go to court. You've got to get parent. a judge. Mm-hmm. you got to get a lawyer to go down there with you. you got to, And you're trying to just take care of that. Yeah. That's right. And it's uh, the emotions are all mixed in there at the time, and you're trying to figure all that out. And that's a, that's an issue. Financial abuse is a critical problem. Uh, and it's it's it can come in numerous ways of looking at it. Give me an example and what you need to look for with financial abuse. One of the examples that we um, experienced was an individual who lived here alone. The two kids lived in other states and the next door neighbor decided to move in with this individual. The next door neighbor put their name on their checking accounts, had her retitle the name on the house, had her deed the car over to them, and basically took uh, all of the assets of this senior individual and then took the position that the senior gave it to them. Mm. And although we may we prevailed at the end, it was very costly and time-consuming in order to get those assets back, and some of the assets we never got back. And emotionally mm-hmm. draining. 
I mean, that can be, that is a, I had a case that uh, husband, there, there was a second marriage for both people, and it was not divorced, and so there wasn't a big issue like that. It was just two widows that got married later part of their life, and, and everybody was fine. Everybody was happy, and, they, you know, 10, 11, 12 years they lived together. Then he dies, she's living in the home, and all of a sudden shows his kids and says, you're out. And, I mean, it literally was going to court. I mean, it was amazing. And, of course, fortunately, and it was one of those things where the husband had put her on as a part owner of the house, even though none of her money went to buy the house. He had done it right. But the kids were immediately upon his death, kicking mom out, kicking this lady out and you know, and, uh, which was not their mom, and, and that, that's how they looked at it. And it was a battle and emotionally draining for all the people. Yeah, and planning for for second marriages is just critical in elder law and estate planning because you need to know how the assets are going to be distributed, who's going to take care of which parent. Um, and a second marriage situation is even much more important. You know, I guess I guess what I want to dive into and, and, and think about this is, guys, you, you've covered a lot of big topics. Mm-hmm. And, 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 Jason... We talked about birth certificates. If you've lost a birth certificate, you got to have a certified copy. Just, right. a, just a printed, you know, run it through the machine at the office yes. is not a not, certified. Not going to work. Not going to work. Marriage and divorce records. I mean, Mac just mentioned that, and that's a huge issue. But that's needed. You need to have the records, and you need to know if you've got a, a deceased dad who was divorced. You need to have all those divorce records. How do you find those if you can't find them? Well, if you can't find divorce records, you can go and file for them in the county in which the divorce took place. Okay. Uh, and so they can do that. They can call their uh, the state lost records office. Vital records. Vital records yep. office, yep. And, and, uh, and they can get that. Uh, there will be a fee. Uh, involved usually, uh, but most of the time that, uh, if they've lost that, they need to, there are several different divorce documents they need. The first thing is to make sure which one of the divorce documents are what they need to get done. That could save them some time. It could save them some money. Uh, for instance, there's the, the final divorce decree that they would, they would need for some situations. Sure. I mean, you're going to need divorce decrees to file for Social Security. Correct. You know, if you're married to a person for over 10 years, you're entitled to that Social Security benefit, and that can be critical in getting that particular doc. So you need to dive into that and make sure. And if you can't find it, don't give up. I mean, you know, Mac, I'm sure you've had people walk in and they don't have it, they can't find it. What do you tell them? Well, I mean, a lot of things that just Jason said, we do that exact same thing. We call the county and try to find it. We had a case one time where uh, someone had been divorced for 20 years and then the individual died and they had a very large IRA, but they had never changed the beneficiary designation. And that went to that spouse. And we went back and found the divorce decree that actually said he's not supposed to get the IRA. Um, and that allowed the entire to go to the kids. So you go to the county records office, you go to whatever. I mean, many times you don't know where they got divorced. They may have got married here. They may have got divorced in Las Vegas. We don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's a critical. So yeah. you've got to do some thinking here. It's not don't leave things by chance. What about the Social Security and Medicare cards, uh, Jason, if you've lost that? person says, well, I know my number, but I don't have my card. Yeah, and, and most of the time for most cases, knowing your Social Security number We'll do, we'll do okay, but you'll need to, if you need to get your card, you've lost your card, you can get it replaced. 
uh, and you should get it replaced. You'll need to know your Social Security number. Uh, you have to apply for that in person. Mm. Um, and so you can uh, apply for that in person. You can find where to apply for that uh, on the website at ssa.gov. Uh, and that'll tell you where your local office is that you could go and apply for in person to get your social security It's card. critical to have the card. I mean, is there is there a time? I mean, that, you know, people think, well, I've lost my card. It's not important. I lost my wallet 10 years ago, and I never got another card, or I don't know where my card is. You know, I know that sometimes you get asked the question, do you have a social security card? Is that an issue? Do you find that to be a thing that they must have, or can you kind of say, ah, maybe not? Uh, I haven't seen it where it is a must-have. Most of the time, your Social Security number will do okay. But any of those important documents, you should have them. Well, I was going to say, as soon as you say it's got to, you know, maybe I don't have it. Tomorrow tomorrow somebody's going to Mac, is that going to happen? Have you had that to happen where people have to have the card? Oh, there are certain applications for government benefits that That require a copy of the Social Security card or the Medicare card. Yeah, I was going to say there is for the veterans, isn't it? The one that that you got to have it in there. So you got, you know, here you go to start filing all this paperwork. And you think it's going to be simple, and you don't have something like that. It uh, can be a absolutely. And I know, I I know for me personally, I uh, I had to show my social security card once. This was a while back, and I found it, and it was in a box, wadded up. Yeah, you know the paper copy of it. So we had to apply to get it. But you know, here's the thought, and I guess this is what I want people to listen to. This is this is planning, folks. This is not. This is sitting down today thinking through this process. We talk about this a lot on this program. Don't wait till it's the last 11th hour. Absolutely. You, know, you need to think through this process and move in, in, a, in a gradual way. So make a list. I mean, whether it's your Social Security card, marriage or divorce decree, maybe it's a passport. passport. Maybe it's your birth certificate. All those documents, and if you don't have them, you know, your alma mater, what's your transcript? I mean, somebody's yeah. going to ask you for that someday. So all those documents that you think that you have, get them together. Then if you don't have a will, get a will. By the way, Mac, I guess to me, that just reminded me of this. If you don't have a will, the state has one for you. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, so, they do. So describe that for our listening audience. I mean, because I think people forget there is a will for you. The state's going to make sure that the property that you've accumulated, big or small, is dispersed according to the law. Absolutely. So if I don't have a will, if I die intestate, that means I don't have a will. What happens? Well, and most people think, well, everything will just go to my spouse. But that's not true. Assets, if you have children, your estate's actually distributed between a spouse and the kids. If there's no kids or spouse, it goes up to your parents. If there's no parents, it goes out to brothers and sisters. If there's no brothers and sisters, it goes to nieces and nephews. It may go to a family member that's never sent you a Christmas card. (laughs) I want to be that one. I want to be that family member. The rich uncle that passed away. Uh, Let me, let me, you said this. It could go to spouse and children. Is that 90% 90 to spouse? It depends on the number of kids. And so basically most of the time the spouse gets some form of child share based on the number of kids. So if there's one kid, the child gets... Child gets 50, the spouse gets 50. If there's multiple kids, then the spouse would normally have a minimum amount they get, depending upon how long they've been married or what state they're in. But, yes, I mean, most people think it would just go to me anyway because right, we're yeah. married, but yeah. it does. It's not true. Now, you mentioned it. I heard you say it. You said minor, minor children. children. Because, yeah, I, you know, you have three minor children. What happens intestate? 
children or minor children, what happens? Well, a minor cannot inherit. And in Tennessee, that's age 18, you know, less than age 18. So if a minor child inherits assets, it actually sits in the probate court in a minor guardianship and there's a lot of cost on an annual basis to deal with those assets. So that's why it's so important to have a will if you have minor kids. Well, let me give you a testimony right quick. We had a couple that uh, died in testate, and the the court called me in as the financial advisor for this two minor children. And it was a it was a sad day. I mean, both parents had been killed in a mm-hmm. car accident. They they ended up having to appoint a guardian. And then they had to appoint a conservatorship. And so I ended up being appointed as conservatorship. Now, you know what I'm about to say. It was Christmas time. Every year, we didn't just say, oh, okay, here's $1,000 to spend money for the Christmas gifts. You go have a good time. Take care of them, guardians, because they get what they've asked for. You know, we're going to take care of that. I had to go to the judge and say, here's the list. Wow. Here's what we're thinking about. This is what we're – and the judge could say nay or yay, and it wasn't always because he had one responsibility, which everybody listening needs to understand. He's there to take care of those children. That's correct. And that's important. Wow. Well, hey, guys, I appreciate it. Mac Bailey's been my guest. He is a, specializes in elder law, and we've covered a major – just a – tremendous amount of subjects. Jason Harrington's been with me. We talked about what about those documents that you failed to keep a hold of and staying around looking for them and you can't find them, whether it's your will, whether it's your trust, uh, power of attorney, you, you know, you need to look at all that. We've actually dived into what happens when a person's incapacitated. How do you deal with that? That's important. And I think uh, I hope you've enjoyed the program. I have. Thanks, guys, for being with me today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Well, again, it's been Talk Money. It's Friday morning. We're here every Friday morning. My guests have been Mac Bailey and Jason Harrington. Mac Bailey Law Firm and Jason Harrington with Shoemaker Financial Producer and Board Operators Art Frederick. Guest and Content Coordination Francis Fortner. Production Assistant Eleanor Moskovich. And of course, Mid-South History Moment was read by Rebecca Brazier and written by Drew Johnson. I'm Jim Shoemaker. We're here every Friday helping you make the most of your money. Jim Shoemaker and Jason Harrington are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services Incorporated, securities dealer member FINRA SIPC. A registered investment advisor, Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.